Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. We rely on the generosity of our listeners to sustain this ministry and the message of Messianic Judaism for all nations. Please consider making a donation to Beth Emanuel by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. Nearly five years ago, in the spring of 2016, Toby Janicki and I met up with several of our FFOZ colleagues in Israel to do some filming for a Hayasod project on the festivals. You may or may not know about this project. It's been in the works for quite a while. We were looking for locations in the land of Israel that we could use to illustrate the various biblical festivals. The challenge is, where do you film? When it came to Yom Kippur, this was a real puzzle because there really aren't any Yom Kippur locations in the Bible other than the Temple Mount, where the priesthood carried out the ceremonial cleansing of the temple through the ritual with the two goats and the bull and the blood of the sin offering taken into the Holy of Holies. That's what we read about in the Torah portion for Yom Kippur in Leviticus 16. On Yom Kippur, two identical goats are brought before the high priest. He draws lots over the goats, designating one as a sin offering for the Lord and one as the goat for Azazel. The priest offered the first goat as a sin offering and carrying its blood into the Holy of Holies. The high priest returned to the goat for Azazel and laid his hands upon it, confessing over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. Loaded down with the sin and iniquity of Israel, the Azazel goat was taken into the wilderness and released to carry those sins and iniquities away. The high priest did this every year, entering the Holy of Holies every year, sprinkling the blood on the ark and on the veil and on the altar of incense to make atonement. This is how atonement was made for the temple. It's a problem for filming because the temple isn't there anymore and has not been there for 2,000 years. It's going to be soon, speedily soon in our lifetimes, but we couldn't wait for that. And even if we did, I don't think they would let us film in there when it's restored. You know, like, we're standing here in the Holy of Holies, waiting for the high priest to enter with the blood of the sin offering. Nothing like that. We had to film a segment about Yom Kippur. But where? I mean... If we were talking about Passover, let's film near Egypt or at the Red Sea. Or if we're talking about Shavuot, let's film at Mount Sinai, or at least a mountain that looks like Mount Sinai. And if we're talking about Sukkot, let's film inside a sukkah somewhere in Jerusalem. Not too difficult. But where do you film for the high holy days? I had an idea. It's true we can't film at the temple. The Muslim authority isn't going to let us film in the Dome of the Rock either. But what about this goat? I thought, could we film a goat? For this Yom Kippur teaching, I put together some of my notes from Torah Club Shadows of the Messiah, some anecdotes from that trip to Israel, and a few thoughts about the apocalyptic nature of this holiday. This isn't a new teaching on my part, and I actually delivered this talk to the congregation on Yom Yom Kippur of 2016. That might be why it sounds familiar. But let's talk about that goat. The Torah says that a man designated for the job will release the goat into the wilderness. But one does not merely release the Azazel goat into the wilderness. In second temple practice, the priesthood found it necessary to kill the goat, lest it wander back into town. They could not slaughter it in the conventional manner. If they did, the goat would appear to be a sacrifice. The Azazel goat was not supposed to be a sacrifice. They solved the dilemma by dispatching the goat by other means. The man appointed to release the goat into the wilderness led the goat out to a certain uninhabited place and released it 
over the side of a cliff. The Mishnah says, he pushed it over backward, and it rolled down the ravine, and it did not reach halfway down the mountain before it broke into pieces. The sages disagreed over the meaning of the word Azazel. The Torah does not call the goat Azazel, it calls it for Azazel. Just as the sin offering is the goat for the Lord, the scapegoat is called for Azazel. So who, or what, is Azazel? In the Talmud, the rabbis taught that Azazel means hard and rough, a description of the cliff over which the goat was to be pushed. That's one opinion. But on the same page of the Talmud, the disciples of Rabbi Yishmael state, it was called Azazel because it atones for the affair of Uzzah and Azael. Uzzah and Azael are traditional names of fallen angels who fathered the Nephilim in the days of Noah. The apocalyptic book of Enoch uses the name Azazel for one of the angels that descended to consort with the daughters of men in Genesis 6, 11-13. The Bible associates evil spirits with uninhabited wilderness places, so sending the Azazel goat into the wilderness suggests sending it to Azazel, that is, to the devil. This is a problematic interpretation. If Azazel is understood as Satan or a fallen angel, then the commandment to send a goat to Azazel might sound like a sacrifice to a demon. That's probably why they pushed it over a cliff. The goat sent into the wilderness was not sacrificed at all. He was neither ritually slaughtered, nor was the goat's blood applied or sprinkled on an altar. It was never called a sacrifice or an offering. It was a different kind of ritual altogether, and in fact, its plummet over the side of a cliff seems to be deliberately non-sacrificial. The apocryphal book of First Enoch alludes to this interpretation when the angels of God bind the fallen angel Azazel hand and foot and cast him into darkness and the fire of judgment. First Enoch 10 says, Again the Lord said to Raphael, Bind Azazel hand and foot, cast him into darkness, and opening the desert which is in Dudael, cast him in there. Throw upon him hurled and pointed stones, covering him with darkness. There shall he remain forever. Cover his face, that he may not see the light. And in the great day of judgment, let him be cast into the fire. They cast Azazel into the, an opening in the desert, which is in Dudael, and he is broken on the stones. Dudael is the same place, the same place name as Beta Dudo, a place in the Judean wilderness mentioned in the Mishnah's description of the goat ceremony. The Mishnah says, They told the high priest, The goat has reached the wilderness. How did they know when the goat had reached the wilderness? They made relay stations and waved flags so that they would know when the goat had reached the wilderness. Beit Hadudo, Dudael, was the name of the location in the wilderness where the Levitical officers threw the goat down the cliff. The book of First Enoch makes a clear allusion to the ceremony of pushing the goat over the cliff as it describes the angels casting the fallen angel Azazel into the wilderness of Dudael. Reb Yositov, popularly known as Joe Good, used to teach that the Azazel goat thrown over the cliff seems to represent the final day of judgment when Satan, and evil itself, will be thrown into the lake of fire. 
Jewish liturgy refers to the Day of Atonement as the Day of Judgment. The festival symbolizes and anticipates the final judgment. In that day, the evil inclination, the devil inside, will be destroyed forever, no more to vex us or dissuade us from the true light. Once the go- <coughs> once the goats once the goats once the goats had been chosen, the high priest differentiated them by means of woolen scarlet yarn. The Mishnah says, He tied scarlet wool around the head of the goat, which was to be sent forth, and turned it around his back to the sanctuary to face the way it would be sent out. On the one that was to be slaughtered for the sin offering, he tied the scarlet wool around its neck at the place at which the slaughter was to be made. The man who led the Azazel goat out to the wilderness took some of the scarlet yarn from the head of the Azazel goat and attached it to the top of the cliff prior to pushing the goat over the side. What did he do? He divided the piece of scarlet wool, the Mishnah says. He tied half of it at the top of the rock, and he tied the second half between the goat's horns. Then he pushed him down backward. The goat went rolling and falling down. It did not reach halfway down the mountain before its body was torn apart limb from limb. As the goat died, the strip of scarlet cloth miraculously turned white. The priests also hung a strip of scarlet yarn in the temple courts before sending the goat away. The strip of scarlet cloth remained on public display while the goat was being led into the wilderness. When the goat reached the wilderness where it plunged over the cliff, the cloth of scarlet wool on display in the temple miraculously turned white. The people in the temple courts beheld the miracle of the scarlet cloth turning white, and they knew that the day's rituals had been efficacious. Atonement had been achieved for another year. Rabbi Ishmael says, They tied a thread of scarlet wool over the gate of the temple, and when the goat reached the wilderness, the thread turned white, as it is written in Isaiah 1.18. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. The wool represents Israel. The scarlet color represents sin. The white color represents purity. The rituals of Yom Kippur provided annual purification for the earthly sanctuary and for the people of Israel. Leviticus 16.30 says, For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So here's the idea I had for filming. I said, Let's go find this place in the Judean wilderness where they used to throw the goat down the side of the cliff. It's a place called Jabal Muntar. Seems easy enough to find. It's on the map. But the problem was that I couldn't find a way to get there. Google wasn't being helpful and none of my maps offered any straightforward routes either. Long story short, it turned out that there are no roads out to this place. It's about eight miles east-southeast, into the wilderness outside of Jerusalem. But there are no passable roads. 
It's in rugged, undeveloped wilderness territory, frequented only by Bedouin and their flocks, and by IDF soldiers in training. To get there, we had to hire a jeep and a driver who also served as tour guide, shuttling visitors to this obscure pilgrimage spot. So we pile in this jeep, and very soon we leave the road to follow a winding back road, sort of a road, but probably the same path that they once used to lead the scapegoat to its death. It's a road intended for donkeys and camels. And that's the only traffic one usually sees on it, even to this day. As we're bumping along over the terrain, impassable to most vehicles, our driver, a self-proclaimed atheist, former IDF commander, now Jeep tour guide and driver, explained the location and its relation to the Azazel ritual. The Mishnah says that along this path, they erected ten booths for the Yom Kippur Day procession. In each booth, food and water were placed for the one leading the goat, lest they should be exhausted by the journey, by the heat. They were allowed to eat and drink on Yom Kippur, because the delivery of that goat to Jabal Muntar was mission critical. But according to the Mishnah, never once did those men eat or drink. Jabal Muntar is Arabic for Mount of the Watchmen so named because of its prominent height. It's the highest point in the Judean hills. From the top of it, you can see a 360-degree sweep of the land with views of Jordan, the mountains of Moab, the Jordan Valley, the Dead Sea, Jerusalem, and so forth. The Judean desert is totally dry. Most of the year, it's like the surface of Mars. Almost no trees and plants We happened to be there in March at the end of the short winter rain season, so we had some greenery on the hills, and the Bedouin were moving their flocks through the hills to take advantage of the grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. As we're setting up our equipment, we could see a Bedouin shepherdess with her flock in the valley, far, far below like Rachel with her father Laban's flocks. We just happened to be there while heavy rain clouds from the Mediterranean, the last of the winter rains, were coming overhead, creating an awesome skyscape, but unfortunately also obscuring a lot of our view and the view of our camera. On one side of this peak, there is a steep, steep drop to a valley far below. I tossed a rock over the side, watched it fall, skip, and roll, And I counted off the seconds until I couldn't see it any longer at all, 15 seconds or so before I lost sight of it. So this is where we set up to film, just a little ways down the slope of the steep side of the mountain, at the very place that seemed to be the most likely goat-pushing spot. I took advantage of the relative holiness of the location and took some time to pray and to read some psalms while I was there. That same morning, I had also received some pretty heavy news from home, and I had a lot to pray about. I think everyone else assumed I was memorizing my lines for the video shoot, which is what I was supposed to be doing at the moment. But I want you to picture this scene, if you can. Our Jeep driver made tea while we set up tripods and tested microphones. It felt like we were standing on top of the world. It reminds me of our Torah portion, Vezot HaBracha, where Moses goes up to view the land. We were across the Jordan from him, looking back back at Mount Nebo and the Transjordan Mountains. Awesome, heavy clouds of rain, bright and dark, both at once swept in upon us, carried on a cool west wind. At some point, I wandered back to the top of the hill, and I was surprised to find myself 
surrounded by goats. I mean, a lot of goats. One goat would have been impressive, but here was a whole flock of goats all around me, only a few feet from the goat-pushing spot. We got the cameras going and started filming goats. From where did these goats come? While we had been setting up, a Bedouin shepherd had come up the other side of the hill with his flock, and it happened to be a flock of goats, which I took as an auspicious sign. And I was also thinking about this scarlet thread they used to tie around the goat. The previous summer, Reb Shalom ben Elisheva and I had studied a relevant passage from the Epistle of Barnabas. Here's what the Epistle, the epistle of Barnabas says about the scapegoat ritual. It says, How did the commandment go? Pay attention. Take two goats, good and identical to each other, and offer them. And let the priest take one as an offering for sins. But what should they do with the other? The other one, it says, is cursed. Pay attention to how the pattern of Jesus is depicted. And when all this has been done, the one who leads the goat brings it into the wilderness and removes the wool from it and places the wool upon a bush that is called rachia, the buds of which we are accustomed to eat when we find them in the field. Only the fruit of the rachia is sweet. This detail about tying the wool to the rachia isn't mentioned in the Mishnah. It's a local historical memory of how the ritual was performed. The author of the Epistle of Barnabas identifies the bush as a rachia bush, a type of bush known to locals for producing sweet berries amidst thorns. He parenthetically mentions that travelers in the Judean countryside eat the berries when they come across them growing wild. He says, only the fruit is sweet, which is to say, the rest of the plant isn't. He indicates that he himself is among the Judeans with personal knowledge of the Rahia, meaning he must have lived in Judea around the time of the Bar Kokhba revolt. This detail about the tying of the wool to the Rahia isn't mentioned in the Mishnah. It's a local historical memory of how the ritual was performed. Barnabas concludes his discussion of the Day of Atonement with one further insight regarding the goat ceremony drawing on his own personal experience in harvesting the wild berries of the rechia, he makes a homiletic point. And what does it mean when they place the wool in the midst of the thorns? It is a pattern of Jesus set forth for the assembly, because whoever desires to take away the scarlet wool must suffer greatly because the thorns are so terrible and can only gain possession of it through affliction. Likewise, he says, those who desire to see me and to arrive at my kingdom must take hold of me through affliction and suffering. Just as the thorns tear the hands of the one harvesting the sweet berries of the rechia, so too one who desires to lay hold of the kingdom must endure suffering and affliction. The scarlet wool tied to the rechia symbolizes Yeshua and the kingdom. Anyone laying hold of the scarlet wool will also suffer the thorns of the rachia bush. He cites an otherwise unknown saying of Yeshua when he says, Those who desire to see me and to arrive at my kingdom must take hold of me through affliction and suffering. There at the very spot where we were filming, I was pleased to find a flowering type of thistle growing. I don't know if it was the Rahia that the author of the apocryphal epistle of Barnabas had in mind, and it did not have berries. 
not at that season, but it was there at the spot to symbolize the suffering of our master who wore a crown of thorns. Everyone suffers. But the beauty of our faith lies in this truth, that the thistle also blossoms and bears fruit. Suffering holds a redemptive value. As the Apostle Paul puts it, through many trials and sufferings, we must enter the kingdom. Imagine standing there in that spot from which the tumbling Azazel goat took at least 15 seconds to reach the bottom, while not more than a few yards away a whole flock of them nosed about. So I said the blessing that a person says for visiting a place where a miracle occurred, because a miracle had occurred at the place in that the cloth turned white year after year, symbolizing that God had once more extended forgiveness, pardon, and atonement for his people, so that his temple might remain standing in their midst. But the flip side of that miracle is that forty years before the destruction of the temple, A prophet from Galilee came predicting it. He predicted the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and they put him to death. And from that time on, the cloth no longer turned white, a clear omen, an ominous omen, signifying the coming destruction of the temple. Forty years prior to the destruction of the temple, the miracle of the scarlet cloth turning white ceased completely. In addition, during the last forty years before the destruction of the temple, the lot for Azazel, consistently came up in the high priest's right hand. The Talmud says, For forty years before the destruction of the temple, the lot for the Lord on Yom Kippur did not come up in the right hand. The strip of red cloth did not turn white. By recording that these signs and omens began to manifest 40 years prior to the temple's destruction, the Talmud unwittingly points toward the death of the Messiah. 40 years prior to the destruction of the temple, the master died, rose, and ascended. In the same year, the veil of the temple tore. After the death of the Messiah, the red cloth no longer miraculously turned white. The lot for the Lord no longer came up in the high priest's right hand. And forty years after this, the temple was destroyed and the sacrifices ceased, forcing us to find some other location to film our segment about Yom Kippur. Yet that same year, the year of our master's suffering, a path for forgiveness, pardon, and atonement opened in the heavenly temple for those who repent and turn to God in the name of Yeshua, and in the merit of his suffering and his righteousness. Not as a substitute or replacement for Yom Kippur, or the ceremonies in the temple on earth, or a replacement of the priesthood on earth, not not on earth at all, but a heavenly way of atonement, a heavenly priest, a heavenly sacrifice in the heavenly temple. For those who will believe in him, it says, therefore, brothers, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, without wavering, 
for he who promised is faithful. So that's where we did our filming for the Israel location for Yom Kippur. It seemed appropriate enough. I'm telling you this only as a way to tell the story, to emphasize the reality of your faith. It's not just a spiritual, abstract idea. Your religion is not something made up or fabricated, nor is it something completely ethereal and transcendent, but something ancient and very real, rooted in history and tactile geography. We should not be playing games with this God. We should be about the real thing, facing off with the real God, the God of Israel, who offers his people on this day forgiveness, pardon, and atonement. Ordinarily, on Yom Kippur, when we do the cantor's repetition for Musaf, we recite the whole Yom Kippur temple service about how the priest would enter the Holy of Holies and how he chose the goats and sent the one goat away. This year, instead, it will be each person's job to keep his or her eyes fixed on our high priest in the heavenly temple, who bore our sins crowned with thorns, who was cast down, so to speak, like the Azazel, but who rose again to a heavenly priesthood, where he remains even now, in the concealment of the heavenly temple, seated at the right hand of the Father. We wait for the day when he will come forth from the Holy of Holies, bedecked in splendor and glory, speedily, soon, and in our lifetimes. Until then, take courage and joy. Seek the Lord. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Let the one who seeks keep on seeking, for everyone who seeks finds. And if we seek in the merit of our Master, we will certainly find forgiveness, pardon, and atonement for our sins, our transgressions, and our iniquities. In his mighty and powerful name, let the power of darkness cringe and shrink away before the bright and terrible light of his countenance. Take on my yoke and learn from me and find rest for your soul.